Y'all, Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, (laughs) why don't you give them a shot you can find a therapist that you can connect with their resource is thousands of therapists well-trained and experienced you can keep looking until you find someone that you click with they have customized online therapy they do offer videos but they also offer phone and live chat sessions so you don't even have to be seen you can only be heard what are you waiting for go to betterhelp that's h-e-l-p.com slash stages and for our cast members you get 10 percent off your first month at betterhelp.com slash stages go 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 find your healing go find your happy stages podcast is sponsored by better help that's h-e-l-p hi i'm stephanie j block and i'm mary lee fairbanks welcome to stages podcast where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage Will you please explain this exquisite draping Mm. or Elizabethan gorgeousness that's behind you? It is. um, When I did this play, Orlando, that was an adaptation of the Wolf novel, um, Anita Yavich, who's a great costume designer, made this. It flew down from the ceiling and went on to David Greenspan when he played Queen Elizabeth. So it's like, you know, it's it's flat (laughs) and it belts. So it's a great costume. Yeah, it is. It's very um, paper dolls, theatrical, gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my husband yeah. wore it for Halloween once. Oh, very sensible. Our guest today is an award-winning playwright, professor, and essayist. She has written 15 plays, including In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play and The Clean House. She is a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist and a Tony Award nominee and a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Fellowship. Her new book, Smile, the Story of a Face, is a memoir that recounts her experience with Bell's palsy and the lessons that it brought her. Please welcome to the podcast, Sarah Rule. Sarah, rule to stage, please. Sarah, can we have you to stage? Thank you for agreeing to come and join us. Oh, delighted. Um, I'm a fan and love what you guys are doing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm intimidated by you, though, by your brilliance. Really? I'm, I'm being very serious. I've read a lot about you. I've read a lot of your adaptations. I'm on the last two chapters of your book, Smile. And this is what I've gleaned. You love soup. (laughs) I do love soup. (laughs) It has been mentioned in, I feel like a couple of your plays, Dead Man's Cell Phone. Mm -hmm. I think it mentioned like three or four times in Smile. And I was like, this woman wicked loves soup. (laughs) And it brought me such joy. Do you love soup? You know, I will be honest. I forget how much I love soup until it's one of the last things in the cabinet. I'm like, oh, what am I going to make my family? And then I'll grab a tomato bisque and and put in all of the little extras. It's almost like graham crackers or Tostitos or Ritz that you forget how delicious they are until you pull out the bag or pull out the soup and you go, oh, yeah, this is just 
Oh, goodness. Wait. I make the best Parmesan zucchini chicken soup you have oh. ever. Oh, yeah. Please send me the recipe. Oh, I will. Great. Oh, it's mm. ridiculously oh. good. Mm-hmm. What's I your super it- choice? Sarah rule. Well, I have a theory that there's soup people and salad people. And I go into it at length in this book, Letters from Max, which is a correspondence (laughs) with a former student of mine who also loved soup. What's my favorite soup? I mean, I can't even choose. It'd be like choosing a favorite child. It's Sophie's choice. It must be the difference between the crunch and just the the different texture. I think I might be a crunch person, y'all. Well, actresses are often salad people, you know, just because... Um, but I find salad eating tedious and it takes forever to eat. And I think there's something about the soup distillation process that it reminds me of like a monk's bowl or like there's something ritual about it for me. And the thing I love about soup too is the longer it sort of sits and steeps and even overnight in your fridge, the better it gets. Mm. Salad doesn't do that. Salad. Mm-hmm. We didn't think the interview was going to go this yeah, direction. Did. I didn't either, but I'm delighted. <laughs> But I want to tell you, I loved your book. I really did. I listened to it twice, finished it, started it again. Um, Yeah, I just really, really enjoyed it. I know that a lot of us can't empathize fully with that experience with Bell's Palsy, right? Because we haven't experienced it. But what we can empathize with is the struggle for self-acceptance and self-love. Explain a little bit how this experience, being immobile, not being able to see the face that you always saw and came to love and expect to see in the, in the mirror. How did that help you discover a deeper self-love? But also, was it anything that you ever struggled with before the Bell's palsy? That's such a good question. I think it took writing the book actually for me to accept my face as it was maybe because I'm a writer. And so for, for a writer, that's the kind of ritual one needs to go through something. And I think for the longest time, I, there was just such a disconnect. I'd look at, I'd try not to look at my face in the mirror. I'd try not to be in social situations or situations where I'd be photographed, where I'd have to deal with it. Um, I talked to very few people about it. And I think it was writing the book that made me see and know how I actually was feeling about it, which was actually that I had a great deal of shame about it. And who knew? I mean, I, I I think cognitively, I thought I'm a writer. What do I care? Why would I feel shame about my face? I I didn't do anything to um, have this happen upon me. So why then shame? You know, it didn't make rational sense to me. So I decided I didn't feel that way, <laughs> you know, until I realized actually I did. Um, and And writing the book was a real balm. I mean, I think all of us struggle with disconnects between what we see in the mirror and what what our internal landscape is and i think i didn't struggle stru- i didn't struggle i like that word <laughs> <laughs> i didn't struggle deeply with um any kind of facial or body dysmorphia or anything before i had bell's palsy it wasn't something i thought a lot about um i think i took things for granted i took smiling for granted mm-hmm. um you know, I saw a picture of myself just the other day in an opening uh, pre-Bell's palsy when I was in my early 30s. And I thought, God, I, I really had a great smile. And I, I didn't think much about it. I just took it for granted. It was, I wasn't, I don't think I was vain. And I mostly thought about the life of the mind. But there's something about when you have something taken away, um, you, you you miss it. My dad had Bell's palsy for years, um, probably... 25 years before he passed. 
And your book made me so regret that I never asked him these questions about it. We just sort of accepted it, never really talked about it. Now he never really, my dad was a very vain guy. He was very Italian. He was really into his hair. He was, you know, dressed impeccably. So I'm sure he struggled with these things. And I so wish now that I could ask him all of these questions that your book made me think about. Well, this is the thing. There's such silence around it. It seems Mm. almost offensive to ask people about, um, about something on their face. Yeah. I, I think, you know, if, if you see someone in a cast or has a break, you say, oh, what happened to your, your leg or your arm? But if someone seems to have a new facial deformity, um, you don't kind of say, you, what happened? You, mm. you just, you don't. And, you know, ironically, um, my father-in-law married a woman, I talk about it in the book a little bit, who was born with a, a brain tumor in Thailand. And she had a surgery done that severed the nerve. So she effectively has had Bell's palsy her whole life. Um, I never asked her about it. I knew we had a similar condition. I never once mentioned it until my book was out. And she said, well, you know, I have Bell's palsy too. And I, I didn't even know she referred to it as Bell's palsy. I knew, I knew she'd had it since birth, but it took actually the writing of the book to even give permission to speak about it. You used the word shame when you were describing Um, your experience. And there's a line from one of your poems that you put in Smile. And it said, women bleed in private like animals, men bleed in public like kings. Now you could take out the word bleed and, and ale or however that might be. I looked at you as such a warrior woman because it makes me quite emotional because I just feel that we take childbirth for granted that in this day and age, everything's mm-hmm. going to turn out right, either mm-hmm. with the babies or the mother. And there's still such a high risk, regardless mm-hmm. of the age, regardless of your, your term or your labor and delivery. Mm-hmm. And when I see women and however their life is transformed, when it is tied to childbirth, I want to scream it from the rafters and mm-hmm. say, this happened because I brought life into mm-hmm. the, the world. You know, mm-hmm. it is a form of beautiful war. You know, we mm-hmm. went through a battle. It was bloody. It ravaged our bodies. And we brought this, mm-hmm. brought two into the mm-hmm. world. Do you ever kind of coach yourself or use that mantra in saying, there's beauty here because of the battle, because of these babies? Yes, I love the idea of birth as a beautiful war that's so beautifully put. And I do think, you know, particularly mothers of twins who I speak to on the playground, it is it is as though we are comrades in arms. As soon as we're like, oh, you're a mom of twins, you're like, oh, let's talk. Like there's an immediacy. Um, you recognize each other, um, like what it does to the body. Um, and I think for a long time, I had a not helpful metaphor about it where I thought, well, you know, my pregnancy was high risk. I thought, well, I had these healthy babies. So I traded this for that and and it's fine. And I think I had to give that one up because it, it did something else wonky, I think, psychologically, but to think of it in terms of every woman is transformed in some way by this experience. I mean, maybe we, we pretend that, um, we look at the People Magazine version. Oh gosh! You know, where, like, you know, women in high heels, breastfeeding post birth after a week, or you know, whatever it is. It, it 
it denies every form of what the transformation was. And yet people are interested, you know, so, so it's like, you can't cultural culture can't look away from motherhood, even, even while it keeps actual motherhood totally invisible. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a weird, um, it's a paradox, I think. And, Similarly, and- I feel like men would say, oh, you know where I got this? I got this protecting my family. The ability to be vocal and prideful about wounds, interestingly uh-huh. enough, their inward wounds, maybe not uh-huh. so much, but the superficial wounds for sure. The woman I feel, we don't. We do the exact opposite. We're willing almost to unzip our our guts and share all of our feelings and all of our um, anxiety and, and worries. And, and yet, like you said, when it's something on the outside physically, we look in the mirror and try to package it in a way that's acceptable for oh. society. And that is a... I shouldn't put a gender to it. Maybe that's not fair. Merely, you just brought up your dad. And and like you said, he wasn't willing to kind of amplify it or voice it. So maybe that's not the case. Well, well, the truth is, I don't know if he wasn't willing. I just never thought to ask. I really do regret that very, very much. And I do think it's gendered. You know, I think that I think men feel incredible suffering when they have Bell's palsy. But I also do think the way it's interpreted is gendered and what you were saying about um, women trying to alter, you know, stretch marks or whatever, and, and sort of not own it. Um, I mean, I think in our culture, women are expected to be ingenues until the day of 70, at which point yeah. they're supposed to expire. Yeah. I do think it's harder on a woman. We're, we're expect, you know, we we're the ones getting the Botox and the fillers and trying to cling to our youth and that face that we, that we were proud of when we were younger and, you know, in a, in a strange way, women really aren't allowed to age. We're just not allowed to. I think it's about power too. You know, men get more powerful as they age. And it, again, in a kind of certain kind of capitalist culture, a lot of women in certain kinds of jobs get less powerful as they age. So they, they try to, um, I mean, I love that show where Sutton Foster is, is playing, you know, a uh, yeah. uh, someone in the publishing industry who's incredibly young. I mean, I, I, think, I think it's called younger. Yeah. That's right, younger. Yeah. I mean, things are changing. Things are changing. And yeah. the more women we have telling stories and the more women we have as vice president, I mean, I think it is changing. You talk about acceptance versus resignation, right? And so there's the notion of radical acceptance, which is the ability to accept things that are outside of our control uh, without putting like judgments and definitions on them. It's based on the notion that suffering doesn't come directly from pain, but from our attachment to the story about the pain. And can you talk a little bit about that acceptance versus resignation? Well, this is another thing that I, I love the Buddhists for, you know, the Buddhist technology of happiness that they've been perfecting for years and years, this idea that we're all going to suffer. Suffering's part of life, mm-hmm. but you don't have to add to that story by sort of suffering about the suffering, you know? Um, and I think that's uh, takes, takes years of practice to kind of, to get to a place of how will I not add to this story of suffering? Another one of the visuals that you had in your book that I can envision myself at the subway station, when you're putting in your subway card and you're looking to, you know, add value or add time. Yeah. I mean, the floor dropped out for me because I went, holy 
crap, I have stood there way longer than I should, knowing that the end train is coming, knowing I have to get on it because it'll be another 20 minutes before the Mm -hmm. next one comes. But I was in an internal debate going, Mm -hmm. should I do value? Should I do time? Should I do value? (laughs) And I I always go to value just because I think I'm a penny pincher. So I want to eke out every little five cents that may then transfer to the next card. Mm -hmm. But when you said, I'm afraid of losing time, And so I choose value. Like you put a whole different definition of that. Can you speak to that a little bit? I was so interested. Well, I think it's just one of those things where it got very existential sometimes when I would look at value or time and I would sort of forget what it even meant in the real world. You know, I'd be standing there. Yeah, the end train's coming and you're like, oh, value or time. What what is value? What is time? (laughs) And I think experiences like bed rest or like being in quarantine during the pandemic did that for a lot of us. You know, what is a value when you have so much apparent time? Mm. Or what is value when you think you have very little time left? Mm. I mean, there are conceptions of value change based on how much time we think we have. You also talked about in the book how not being able to express on your face forced you to change the way you expressed yourself verbally or with your gestures or being bigger with your emotions. Did that bleed into your writing? Did it change your craft? Hmm. I don't know. I feel like that would be an interesting thing for someone to look at and see if they saw that. I mean, when I look at how my writing changed when my twins were little, it was more about, oh my God, how the hell am I going to write at all with these three kids under the age of four all screaming at the same time. So it was more, I started writing micro essays. I wrote a book called a hundred essays. I don't have time to write because I thought, well, I can't write in long form. I don't have the attention span, but I could just write a tiny essay, just one thought. If I could just remember it before they go to bed at night and just write it down And eventually that became a book. Because I think sometimes when you're writing, you're trying to strip away the extras and get down to just the clean sentence Mm -hmm. and the clean thought. But when you're physically going overboard, being bigger, being more Mm -hmm. expressive, Mm -hmm. I wondered if that became a struggle inside the writing as well, that your writing suddenly became more flourished, more, you know, more, more expressive. And it was harder to pare down to the clean thought. No, that's a hard no, just because um, I'm such a non-adjectival writer. And, and I think that um, in a way, what was, what was hard was my writing life was so separate from my body. You know, I, I, I thought, well, this is my face. I'm putting that over. This is my body. This is over there. I don't even want to think about it or deal with it while I'm writing. The writing felt like some disembodied platonic ideal where you could have a stripped away thought or you could have a poem and you didn't need the extra bodily communication or, you know, as a playwright, it's also, that's why I, why I have actors, you know, these amazing avatars who can do all of the embodied expression while I'm sitting in my little room. Oh, Sarah, if we were in a room together, you would be like, oh girl, you got to get rid of 50 of those choices. We got to pair that. I also find it so interesting that as starting as a poet, so you're published at 20 with your poems. Did your father live to see you as a published writer? I might have had a couple poems published before he died. I don't think he would have seen a book published, no. And you said that with through poetry, it's the expression of I 
And then once you become a playwright, you get to have all these different voices and um, expressions coming out of these different characters. Um, has that been freeing to and for you? Yes, you- it's been the love of my life, except for my husband and, and kids, you know, doing doing that work. And I've really missed it during the pandemic, that multivocal writing from a place of we. However, I, I feel lucky that I've had poetry to go back to, um, you know, to write from a place of I and to write. I wrote a haiku a day during the pandemic just to mark time and to mark seasonal change. The first week there was no school, as you sure remember. You said, what am I going to do with the kids? And um, I thought, well, I can write poetry. I'll write poetry with my son, William, to, to not be bored. And we wrote a haiku together the first week, which was something like... Um, the theaters are shuttered. The grocery stores are all empty, but my mind is full. And how old was William at the time? William, let's see. William is 12 now, so he would have been 10. So I I turned to the essential, you know, not, not being able to have that incredible choral, multivocal, let's all be in a room together and make something together. That, that what has been my life really for the past 20 years. And I went inward and and went back to poetry. Are all of your children showing theatrical and artistic tendencies? What's fascinating is not to do with performance. They're not into that. But I think my son might be a writer. Um, My daughter, Anne, is a beautiful visual artist. And my daughter, Hope, loves dancing. And Anna Mm. dances, too. You end the book with a really beautiful story about your daughter, Anna. Can you share that? It's such a beautiful story. Sure. It was kind of an amazing story. I was talking to my editor in the car on speakerphone and Anna was in the back and we were talking about Bell's palsy and depression and postpartum depression. I hung up the phone and I said, oh, that must've been interesting for you, Anna. What did you think of all that? And she said, oh, what's interesting. I didn't know you felt that way. And I said, well, what did you think? And she said, well, when you got Bell's palsy, I sort of thought, it was as though your face was a beautiful house and suddenly a wall fell down and crumbled and you kept trying to rebuild it brick by brick and you couldn't quite. But when we look at your face, all we see is our house. And I thought, oh, well, if I'd known that 10 years ago, I might not have had to write this book. Like she had it all, she had the metaphor all ready for me. She sure did. And what's extraordinary as, um, again, going back to the, the, the mother of a daughter, yeah. I make sure that I am very much aware of right. the language we use and how they perceive us, you know, at those tender ages. That is so important so that mm-hmm. your daughters or all your children are looking to you and just seeing the essence of who you are and the strength mm-hmm. of who you are and how that will service them or how we pray that will service them mm-hmm. as they move through life is a tremendous, tremendous gift because you will be the benchmark with which they always go back. It's interesting, you know, all the the trauma with women or, or girls, young girls, adolescents on Instagram now and how, how depressed and anxious girls are because of that constant mirroring in in the world and not being able to kind of look inward and, and not have the the image and the mirror all around all the time. And I think we need a different way in. And I was so moved when I came across the, the section in the book about finding this phrase, the original face, which comes from Buddhist sutras, this idea of what was your face before your parents were born, yeah. your original mm-hmm. face. Um, 
and that kind of blew my mind. I thought, oh, I've been looking for my old face, but why don't I, why don't I try something a little harder? <laughs> Just look for my original face. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not there. You can't see it. So you don't even have to worry. Yeah. yeah the, the other Buddhist concept that you were talking about in the book, how you can change the inside by the outside, mm-hmm. where you were saying, if I smile, then I can be happy, you know? And it's interesting I, because when I teach yoga, I tell people just the opposite. I tell them, you know, we go into these heated power yoga rooms because we mm-hmm. want to make create change from the outside in, but mm-hmm. lasting change can only happen from the inside out. If you look for change that is externally motivated, you will see change, but it's usually not permanent change. Permanent mm-hmm. change has to come from an internal shift. Mm-hmm. And, and so you were talking about that Buddhist concept where if I smile, then maybe I'll be happy. But it really took you exploring the internal shift through your writing to Mm -hmm. create the shift. And it actually helped create the physical external shift too, wouldn't you say? Because it was after the book that you started to have more movement and heal. Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly right. I mean, it's beautifully said. I, I think you know, ironically, it took writing the book to go see a physical therapist again after, you know, 10 years I'd seen the wrong physical therapist at early onset. Yeah. And someone took a picture of me while I was trying to do these hard exercises. I feel like it was like Cosmo and singing in the rain. You know, she's, <sighs> she's like, <"Wah." laughs> um, so yeah. And then I finally, after, while I was writing the book and in process where I thought you know, the way a writer thinks like, oh, well, I'll try anything for, to get a new scene in my book. I'll even go to PT, <laughs> go to PT again, you know, um, so going to this woman who was really thought outside the box and had had Bell's palsy herself um, was, was quite therapeutic, I think, for retraining the muscles. Do you have a new perception? Can you look at people and say, oh, they're faking it. They're faking that smile. They're faking that emotion. You know, um, I don't know if I have a new perception of it. It's interesting in the book, I talk about this thing called the Duchenne smile, which is, you know, that, you know, someone's authentically smiling. if you know, the corners of your eyes are going up as well. Um, as opposed to a plastered on smile, that's like, you know, Mm -hmm. just your, just your lips moving without your eyes. Um, like my kids, when they smile for the camera, they hate being photographed. So they always do like a smile with teeth without, you know, without the, yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Dead eyes, but wide smile. I also found it so interesting when you spoke about being submissive with the slight women being Mm -hmm. asked with the slight tilt of their head. Mm -hmm. And we're asked to show our teeth while again, the men in the yearbook or the men in whatever pamphlet Mm -hmm. straight on, you don't need to show teeth. It's fine. You know, power in your positioning and we're the subservient, sweet little ingenue as you, Mm -hmm. as you so well put it. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it's very interesting to, to see that if something physically were removed and your earnest effort to get that, um, expression back that somehow perhaps your spidey sense senses would be like, Oh no, uh, -uh. Mm uh, you're bullshitting me right now. (laughs) Well, you know, and that's sort of the game in the theater in general, you know, is, um, what do we feel when we look at an actor evincing emotion? Mm-hmm. Do we feel they're being truthful? And what does that even mean if they're in a play that is not reality? Mm-hmm. You know, that there's a kind of truth that we we know when we see, right. um, even though they're in a fairy tale or they're in, you know, they're singing, they're singing a song. So we know that we know it's not real. 
Right. Mm -hmm. The joy is real. So to find the authenticity inside of that inauthentic space, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah. So it seems like you have a real balance between the love of academia and the love of art and that you're always learning. Is that something that you learned at home as a child? Were your your parents like this? I love it about my mom and dad and my grandparents um, that they were lifelong uh, autodidacts. Um, And my, my mom who was, you know, alive and well and acting in Chicago, but the whole time in, in the pandemic, you know, she couldn't act. And every time I call her, she would say, ah, I'm reading the most wonderful book. <laughs> She's so excited. Every time I call her, I'm reading the most wonderful book. And it's a different book every time. She's always learning. I, I read somewhere the other day that Leonardo da Vinci, when he woke up in the morning, made lists of like, what am I going to learn today? Wow. I think it was in an Austin Cleon book. And he was, it was a cartoon. He doodled like Leonardo da Vinci, like waking up being like, oh, I learned today. And us waking up and being like, what news is on my feed on my phone today, you know, which is often how I felt in the last five years of, you know, trauma in this country. So I feel like I aspire to be more like my mom who's always saying, I read a wonderful book today, as opposed to the reality of my life sometimes, which feels like I read another depressing thing on my phone today. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In reading the New Yorker, there was a piece on you called The Surreal Life. And the author of that piece said, rule is reserved, but not shy, alert, but not aggressive. Does that feel, does that feel right to you? It does. I mean, John Lahr, he, he, he became like my psychoanalyst. I mean, I felt, he? I felt really seen by him. Um, and we talked at length, you know, yeah, he was great. Him. Does he do a lot of pieces on particular artists? He's got um, a book of profiles, um, like a collected book. I think it's called Joyride, maybe like a, okay. a book of his collected profiles of people in theater. I also felt a deep connection to you because Cape Cod is my escape too. It mm. fills me in a way that <clears throat> I can't quite articulate. Um, talk about time. I know in COVID times, we also look at each other and go, what day is it? What's happening mm-hmm. now? I have three things to do today. That's insurmountable. Mm-hmm. Like it's changed my whole definition of time. Yeah. But when I'm in Cape Cod, there is a completely different rhythm that mm-hmm. takes over me and my family. Did mm-hmm. you go there as a, as a young child and do you continue to do so? Yeah, we went as kids. And then my father, it was such a ritual that when he, before he died, um, he wanted to go to Cape Cod one last time when he had cancer and he couldn't, I mean, it was clear he couldn't travel. So we kind of pretended to have Cape Cod from his sick room and had fish and wrote little postcards. And, you know, he died not long after he died that August. Um, but I go back now because Paula Vogel, who was my mentor and her wife and Fausto Sterling, who in a bizarre small world events is my husband's mentor we go to see them. They're sort of godparents of our kids. So we see them every summer. That's great. Will you speak to us about your husband, Tony, how you met? Was it by, uh, you know, chance that you met Tony? Was it by, it was chance. Wonderful chance. So I, I love this story. He and I went to Brown together as undergrads, but we didn't really know each other. We knew of each other. We had friends in common. And when I went back to graduate school there to study with Paula Vogel for, to study playwriting, a friend said, oh, there's a room in my friend's, um, you know, Victorian uh, apartment building on the first floor if you need, a, you know, roommates. And I said, oh, yeah, 
that'd be great. Um, so I moved in with Tony and with another scientist and I was dating someone else at the time that was tumultuous that ended. And then Tony and I started dating. Um, and because it seemed weird to be living together and dating, I eventually moved down the block, um, which you can do in Providence. Cause you know, it's like, you can find rent. <laughs> I moved in with a divorced uh, poet and art historian and, um, and then would, would visit, visit Tony. Um, but yeah, we, we started, we fell into it. You know, we fell into living together. At the time, was writing poetry your your focus? I think Paula Vogel had pulled me over into the dark side of playwriting by the <laughs> time I was a, like a, a junior at Brown. So um, she basically, I, you know, because I was a little bit shy, she snuck a play of mine into the New Plays Festival at Brown Um I mean, obviously I knew it was happening by the time it went up, but it was that opening night that really made me want to be a playwright. And that was my senior year at Brown. So I would have been, you know, 20, 22. And then, wow. and then that was that. To express, um, I want to be a poet. I find it to be one of the most respected art forms. You don't hear about modern day poets in a way, in the mainstream way that you would hope to. Are, is there still a large community of poets out there that we just don't know? Yes, it's robust. It's wonderful. It's all, it's all around. You just, you just have to find them. Um, and I think it's something that I love about poetry is the the lack of attachment to capitalism, you know, and there's a beautiful book by Lewis Hyde called The Gift, where he talks about being a poet in a capitalist world. And I really recommend it because he talks about the idea of the gift economy and that when you're an artist in this moment in time, in this culture, it's, it's odd because usually what drives you to be an artist is the, is the impulse to make a gift, is the gift economy and then you're stuck in this other superstructure and, and it's hard to, it's hard to combine the two. So with theater, I feel, I feel like it's not that different from poetry. You know, it's, it's a, it's a voice, it's a singing voice. It's, you know, calling a voice into the silence or into the void. And then, you know, show business is just an entirely other thing. You adapt a lot of these classical plays. How does that um, feed you in? And is there a different level of responsibility taking a work that is so well-known and renowned and then shaping it into what's needed for this storytelling that you're working on? Yeah, I, I think of it as a kind of service lesson. You know, I wouldn't adapt another piece of art unless I felt it had something to really teach me. And so mm -hmm. if I feel like something has something to teach me, then I really want to kneel at its feet. So like I've done a Three Sisters translation. I did Virginia Woolf's Orlando. And then my play Eurydice is a little different in that there, there was no existing play version of it. So we just have the mythic architecture. And then I adapted that play into an opera, which was really a, a delight. And, you know, I, I think now I have the bug. Now I have the this opera. The opera bug. Do you feel like your work lends itself to the 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 large stage, the epic um, grandeur of, of opera? It worked for that play for sure. I don't know if it would work for other plays, but it's interesting because it already had a chorus. It had like a chorus of stones and put it into three movements. So it, it did not require all that much new hardwiring for, for it to sing in that way. 
So you said that you adapted it because you felt like it had something to teach you. Can you tell us what those three things taught you when you adapted them? Well, Chekhov teaches me about a couple of things. One is structure. He's so, he's actually so weird in terms of his structure. You think of Chekhov as maybe a well-made play. It's a bizarre, Three Sisters is a very bizarre structure. It's like, oh, everyone's coming over. Um, oh, now there's a big fire. Um, now <laughs> someone's going to shoot someone. <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> yeah. So, and balancing many voices, like I've, Chekhov, I think, is one of the kings of the the music of, say, balancing, you know, eight to ten voices in a room at the same time. Mm. Um, And also looking at the banality of of moments, everyday moments, and how they ripple, Mm. and how different characters speak. Like, I was working with this native Russian speaker who would say, oh, this is how Tuzenbach talks, really choppy, like, because he's German. Mm. And here's how Vershinin talks. It's like water. It's like, you know, it's is very poetic and lyrical. And then from Virginia Woolf, I mean, she she too is just like a goddess to me. Um, she teaches about transformation, about moments of being, about language. I mean, just sitting with her sentences is such a beautiful thing. And I think she was light years ahead, <clears throat> sorry, and thinking about gender. So I think we're only now catching up to what she was doing in Orlando. And then adapting my own play, I really can't, I can't speak to what I learned for myself, but I learned a lot about the world of music and how things are voiced and, you know, how music and language kind of intersect. And now it's time for the five questions. If you could go back to your teenage self, what advice would you give her? I I think I'd say you're going to be all right. Keep going. Keep at it. Okay, here's a biggie. If you were in a hostage situation and you had to tell Tony that you were in a terrible position without saying, I am held hostage, what could you say to Tony that he knows this is not, Sarah, something horrible is happening? Oh, God. Um, It makes me flash on that thing in the book where I don't tell him I'm having twins, but I say, let's go to Gramercy Tavern instead of Rice. And he's like, (laughs) oh, you're having twins. So maybe it would be like a really bad restaurant. like trying to think I, I maybe I would say I'm in a tub of Sancerre and I think he'd know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> okay what was your childhood nickname who gave it to you and why my dad called me Sarah D because my middle name is Dart um and my best friend from high school Sarah Hinkle called me Drooly because my middle name is D and a D and rule is drool so <laughs> Drooly if we were to walk into your closet, is there a, a garment, a piece of clothing, a jewelry that has such a memory to it that you will never, ever part with it? It's my grandma's coats. My grandma had five mm. kids in Iowa and she saved all the coats and I was big into vintage clothes um, as a teenager. So I just go in her closet and take her coats. So she has one pink coat that's fabulous. And when Tony and I were first dating, he saw that it was ripped. So he had it relined. Um just good, good sign. Real good, good sign. sign. Tony. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last question. If you were a nail polish color, what color would it be? And what would the cheeky little name be? Oh, you know, I've often thought it'd be so fun to name nail polish or lipstick. <laughs> um, I'm really into sea foam or like light blue. Um, so maybe I would call it, um, <laughs> open your throat chakra blue. How about that? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. What a delight. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for your book. I loved it. Let's all make a musical someday. Bye. Coming up next, what struck a chord with us right after this break? Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Our theme song says, love where you are now, but sometimes we all need a little help. I've learned from therapy and in my yoga practice that growth comes from challenges. A good therapist can help you reframe the way you look at a challenge and your life. And BetterHelp can provide you with a therapist that gives you some tools to navigate. They offer customized online therapy, either on video or phone chat sessions. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can reach a therapist in under 48 hours. And right now, Stages cast members get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp, so don't wait. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you support Stages Podcast. So log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash Stages, and love where you are now. I'm going to process that interview for a while. Uh, that New York article, that New Yorker article that I referred to, I'm not kidding. I had to look up every sixth word in the article because I I didn't know what the definitions of these words were. She's wicked smart. Oh, my stars. But yet she shows up. She gives of her time. She speaks truthfully. And I think that is what allows people, whether the content is heady or, you know, however you want to phrase wicked smart, you still are reading through her book. And I wept multiple times. There's a page in the book that has her picture and her smiling Mm -hmm. before the Bell's palsy. Mm -hmm. And I kept referring back to that picture. And I kept thinking, Stephanie, what does it matter what her before face looked like? What does it matter? But somehow getting lost in her words and getting lost in her story and her journey to want to go back to that before face, I needed it as a point of reference so that um, I could walk alongside her in in this book. I kept saying, I can't imagine, I can't imagine. And then she addresses that in this Mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. And she says, please stop saying, I can't imagine. It's much um, more gracious and empathetic to say, I can only imagine what that might be. And that, that changing of phrase, I was like, that makes such a difference. I will never say I can't imagine anymore. I know. I know there were so many of those moments in that, in this book. And I kept doing it in the interview, like when you said this in the book and you said this in the book, because they just kept jumping out at me. And I think that's why she's such a great writer. She has these clear, brief, profound statements. Yes. And and even as an interviewee, she doesn't embellish. She was clear, brief, yes. profound. And that's just what she does. And her book, I, f- I feel like she had the grace to allow us to look at ourselves in a different way. And that's the whole point, right? You don't want to go back to the face you used to have or the being no. you used to be, right? We're supposed to change. We're, and we're supposed to allow that change. And part of our pain and unhappiness is, the, is what we do to ourselves because we don't want to allow the change, not only the physical change, but the emotional changes that we go through, especially through middle age. 
um, right. the physical, the emotional, and spiritual, spiritual changes yeah. that we and start I, to have as middle-aged women. Um, our kids are growing, our kids are moving. Where what's this next thing? And instead of going back and trying to recapture the face that we used to have, the youth that we used to have, the person that we used to be then, we have to embrace what we are now. Well, that's the thing, right? The embracing of ourselves, the acceptance of ourselves is the only point from which then we can change. But she gives us gifts in this book that did spiritually change me. She also uses extraordinary moments that she took from other playwrights, uh, other artists that she'd worked alongside. And one that I want to share, as she says, a former student, a wonderful playwright named Tori Sampson wrote a play called If Pretty Hurts, Ugly Must Be a Motherfucker. It's an adaptation of a West African fable about jealous girls who try to drown the most beautiful girl in the village. At the end of the play, a woman sits at the mirror and slowly puts on makeup. She says to herself in a mirror, like a mantra, this is my body. I am my soul. These are my lips. I am my word. This is my skin. I am my action. These are my legs. I am my contribution. This is my smile. I am my laughter. Well, Mary Lee, I was such like such a mess because the truth of that and the difficulty with which I try to embrace, I know this to be true. That is so effectual to me. And if that's a lesson I can learn in reading her book, the sort of sanctity of being clear and accepting and then moving forward, oh my gosh. There's a stillness that you need for that kind of succinct clarity. And I think the world is not very still. This notion of radical acceptance, I think, really sits with me. What does that look like to you? Define radical acceptance to you. It's about understanding how to release control over things that we have no control over and allowing, just allowing things to be what they are without judging them, without putting labels on them, without trying to change them into something that we would prefer. And to me, it almost feels like the point of life, that that's Mm -hmm. what we're supposed to try to get to. And it's very hard because we all want to control things and change things and make them way we want them to be. You know, it goes back to what she was saying too, right? We were talking about the, she was saying, you have to trust in the silence. And I remember there was a moment in her book that says um, she was trying to make a poem or a short story theatrical, and it's difficult in doing that. But if you can reveal that in the quiet, then you have created something pretty remarkable, pretty spectacular, revealing the theatrical in the quiet. What a challenge, but if you hit it, it's magic. Well, she was, she was great. That was really, I was really excited for this interview because I really loved her book. I did too. Love you. Love you. (laughs) 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 Uh, Goodbye.
So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. A big thank you goes out to our assistant and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you to Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music, Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages Podcast logo, Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer, and Alison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week. <laughs>